The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. I'm curious who you got tonight. How many of you are Eagles fans? Let me hear from you. Yeah, a few of you. How many of you Patriots cheering for the Patriots tonight? Two of you. How many of you don't give a rip about the Super Bowl tonight? I'm a uh, Cowboy Saints fan. I'm a bandwagon fan. Whoever's winning, I cheer for them. And uh, so I watch the Super Bowl for the commercials. So that's the best part of the whole Super Bowl. But if uh, you know about the thing about our staff, Tim Cartwright hails from Philadelphia. He is a diehard uh, Philadelphia Eagles fan. And so um, I want to cheer for the Eagles, but I don't know if I can put up with Tim's mouth for the next year. So I, I'm really struggling. I'm toying with that. And uh, the only thing worse than being an Eagles fan is Dave Tate is a Washington Redskins fan, and they haven't won in decades, so he has nothing to talk about. Uh, But Tim came to me this past week, and he said, Gary, I've got biblical evidence that the Eagles are going to win. And I'm thinking, really, how do you get that? Uh, If you know anything about Tim, his dad uh, played football at Naval Academy as a quarterback. He replaced a guy named Roger Staubach, if you remember that name. And uh, actually, John Cartwright, Tim's dad, broke a bunch of his records at Naval Academy. I've been in the building, seen his name on the Naval Hall of Fame, actually. He's quite an athlete when he played there. Uh, So since that time, John has been a pastor in uh, Philadelphia, in the urban area of Philadelphia. And uh, this is a picture Tim sent to me from his dad's church that gives biblical evidence that the Eagles are going to win. So here's what Tim sent me. How many verses in the Bible are about Eagles and how many about Patriots? (laughs) Eagles 34, Patriots nothing. So there you go. Uh, I wouldn't put any money on that one if I were you. So there we go. John chapter 2 is where we find ourselves this morning. Um, Just to read verse 12, 13. Passover the Jews was at hand and Jesus went to Jerusalem and he found in the temple. I'll stop right there. Father, we have uh, worshipped in song. We have laughed. We've enjoyed the fellowship of the brothers and sisters. And uh, this is your word, Father. I'm your messenger today. Spirit of God, I would ask you to uh, guide us into all truth. As we look at the word, would you teach us? Would you teach us about yourself? Would you teach us about ourselves? And we leave this place. We pray that Jesus would be made famous through us and we would be his ambassadors and that we would represent him well. In Christ's name, amen. Every Passover, every Jewish household had a ceremonial cleansing. Every Jewish household in all of Israel at Passover time underwent a cleansing. They would first start in the cupboards and they would begin to look around as they opened the cupboard door and they would begin to clean things out. And then they would go to the walls and they'd begin to scrub the walls from floor to ceiling and then they would go back and then they would get brooms and they would sweep and re-sweep the floors of their house. They weren't looking for dirt, they were looking for yeast. They weren't looking for dirt, they were looking for yeast because Passover was a time of remembrance. It was a, a time of remembering and when, when God had allowed them to escape from the Egyptians. And the night of Passover, they had to leave so quickly in the middle of the night that they couldn't put yeast in the bread because there wasn't enough time for the yeast to rise. And so when Passover came and they looked back to remember the, the past and what God had done, then they would go through their household. Every good Jewish family had the ceremony of cleansing. The law was specific. The penalty was strict. And so every Jewish family cleansed their household. 
they would go through and they'd look for things. And the night before Passover, dad would light a candle and dad would go through the house with his family and they would look for crumbs of bread so they could throw it out. And if they found any food with yeast, they would discord it. You see, yeast in the scriptures was not only a reminder of the escape from Egypt, but it was also a reminder of sin because yeast became a personification or a symbol of sin. And so every good Jewish household underwent a ceremony of cleansing at Passover. Every house getting rid of the desecration, the defilement represented by yeast. Every house except one. God's house. Every house in Israel would be cleansed. Every house would be made clean. The search would take place. But there was one house that had yeast in it. It was God's house. And that's what John 2 is about. John 2 is about Jesus going on a hunt for yeast, if you will. It's Passover time, and he goes to the temple, and he gets to the temple. It's the same place he's been year after year. The scriptures tell us, you remember I preached a sermon a few weeks back on uh, the day God was lost. Do you remember that? When Mary and Joseph are venturing out of Jerusalem, Jesus is 12, and, and Joseph turns to Mary, you got Jesus? No. You got Jesus, Mary? No. Don't play a joke on me, Joseph. You got Jesus? No. And they left Jesus behind the day God was lost, right? So Jesus had gone to Passover many times, and the problem is the yeast was rising in the temple. The, the, the yeast was rising in the dough of the temple, and the sin of the temple is the yeast of commercialism. You see, in the temple, they, 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 the money changers were there. If you came to worship at Passover, you had to take your currency, the currency of the day or the currency of your, your, your community or your country, and you had to exchange it for the temple currency. And you see, whenever money is exchanged, money is made. And the, 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 there was a fluctuation on the exchange rate. The lower the character, the higher the exchange rate. The lower the character, that money changer, the higher the exchange rate was. And he was going to make some money in, in the process of changing. And not only that, but people were supposed to bring their sacrificial animals to the temple. And the priests were the ones inspecting those animals. And oftentimes, if you brought your own animal, they would disqualify that animal, find some blemish or fault in them. And you'd have to go buy animals from the stalls around the temple. Everybody had their hands in the pockets of the worshipers. Maybe they came with pure hearts, but the people on the inside had impure hearts. And the temple had become a place of commercialism rather than a place of worship. It became a place where people were prayed upon instead of praying to the Heavenly Father. It was a place where the priests, and many of them were the sons of the high priest Annas at this time, where, where everybody made a profit. You see, the people in Jerusalem, they loved Passover. They could sell, they could rent one of their rooms as part of an inn. They could sell souvenirs. They could sell their services. And for the priests to make a little money on the side, who really cared? Because everybody benefited from Passover. And so in this particular Passover, the ministry of Jesus begins. And Jesus goes to the temple, and he sees what's always been done in the temple. He sees that commercialism and commerce has replaced worship and prayer. But more importantly, it's not the what that's happening in the temple, it's where it's happening in the temple. The what was wrong, but the where was atrocious. Because if you looked at where the money changers were and where the sellers of the animals were, this is what the temple looked like in that day. This is a model of it. This is what the temple looked like. The, the building in the middle that you see would be where the Jewish people worship. There's the holy place, the place that rises above everything, that's taller than everything, the holy of holies inside of that. But the open area surrounding the court of the Gentiles. 
In the court of the Gentiles, the area surrounding that is where the money changes were. It's where the animals were bought and sold. It's where everything happened so that the Gentiles could no longer find a place to come and worship. You see, what happened is instead of foreigners being invited in, they were invited out. Instead of a place for them to worship, there was now a place of commerce. And the problem became that there was no place for them to come. They were not welcome there. And so when Jesus walks into the temple on that day, he sees the buying and selling of animals. He sees the money being exchanged. He sees the exploitation of the worshipers that are there. And Jesus gets mad. Theologians call it righteous indignation. He's got an anger on. He's got a mad on. Jesus is upset. Because everything that he was about and his father was about was cast aside. You see, what was happening now is that, is that the money, money was being made by everybody, and everybody's excited about that, but the reality of it, a place that should be a place of prayer, a place of worship, and especially for those in the outer courts, the Gentiles, it, Israel was supposed to be a light unto the world, a light unto the Gentiles, but the light was replaced by darkness. The light had been replaced by commerce and by commercialism. The light had been replaced by, and so the Gentiles themselves, the foreigners who should have come in to know that there is a God, a true God, a Jehovah God, that all that was closed. They were no longer a missional nation. They were an exclusive nation. So Jesus steps into the scene. And I, I, I don't know how it all happens, but the scriptures give us an indication of it. The buying and selling is taking place. There are no Gentiles there. They're not really welcome. Maybe a handful, but that's even doubtful. Money changers serve to keep the temple coffers full, to fleece their own pockets. And everybody turns to their own ways. And Jesus walks in. In my mind, I picture Jesus standing by a table. And he picks up some leather and he begins to braid it. And he just watches. And he watches. And he watches. And then when he has all he can stand, scriptures say he took a whip and began to drive him out. You see, the temple had become a flea market, if you will. And he walks in and he turns over tables and he throws people out. And you can see people scattering. You can see them slipping. You can see them falling. You could hear the money crashing on the ground when the tables are flipped over. You can see people scrambling to get out of the way of this madman, this intruder. Hence the title of this morning's message, The Intruder. He intruded upon their lives. They had carefree lives. Later on, he would say, you sit at the nicest tables. You sit at the head of the tables. And so the priest had somehow traded good hearts for a good life. And they forgot what they'd been called to do. And so Jesus goes in and he braids this whip and he begins to lash out. And tables are turned over and Sheep begin to bleat, oxen begin to run, and people begin to flee. And you can see it in the scriptures, my friends. Look at it in verse 14. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and dove and the money changes seated. What we see here is the passion of Jesus. What we see here is the passion of our Savior, a passion to make things right, a passion so that people would not be excluded from being able to hear about the Father, but they'd be included. 
that the place would become what it should be, a house of worship and prayer. And so he found them in the temple, the money changers, and he seated, and he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them out of the temple, the sheep, the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers. You can hear it falling upon the ground, and he turns over the table. He goes into their flea market, and he turns everything upside down. He intrudes upon their private party, if you will. And he went to those who were selling dove. The dove were probably in a wicker cage. And so you can hear them fluttering around. You can hear them. They're not cooing. They're wondering when they're going to be let loose or when they're going to be killed or what's going to happen to them. And in the midst of that, he cries out, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. By the way, those who see Jesus as meek and mild only miss our Savior. He's also holy and righteous. And he's a man. And then it says, his disciples remembered, it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. Don't you wonder what it looked like? Don't you wonder what it sounded like? Don't you want it to smell like? I mean, don't you wish we could be transported to that first century and see and hear it all? You know, Google knows everything, right? So Google recorded it for us. Got a video for me? Actually, it's not Google, it's Hollywood. not my father's house and house of merchandise. Jesus comes on the scene and changes everything. He comes in as this intruder to this private party and, and he didn't empty the temple of Gentiles, he emptied it for Gentiles. He emptied so that people like you and me, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And so he empties a courtyard so that the nation of Israel can be missional, so they can reach out and become the light to others. And so that it wouldn't be a place of commerce, but a place where prayer and worship could take place. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene, he sees all this stuff, this religious flea market, and he changes things. He intrudes upon this private party, and we cannot underestimate or overestimate the, the importance of the temple in the first century. The temple was everything to Israel. It was a geopolitical religious center. Everything that was of significance took place in the temple, around the temple, had to do with the temple. And Jesus walks in and, and, and he turns his place upside down, be like somebody walking in here and screaming and we all flee and run and say, what in the world's happening here? He intruded upon this party. And so uh, it was a place that was filled with yeast, commerce instead of prayer, work instead of worship. And it had the appearance of bearing fruit because there were a lot of people, a lot of activity and not much fruit. Sound familiar? What can happen to the church? 
places of a lot of people, a lot of activity. But do we bear much fruit? And so Jesus comes in and he clears the temple. Now, if you study the scriptures, there's a debate about whether or not Jesus cleansed the temple one time or two times. When you look at the synoptic gospels, we've been talking about the difference between John and the synoptic gospels. 80% of John is different from uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, in the synoptic gospels, we see that uh, the cleansing of the temple is recorded in the Passion Week of Christ at the end of his life. And so some would say that there are two cleansings. I, I would say that the one we're reading about in John early on, the ministry of Christ, the second one later on. There are other scholars that say, no, there's one cleansing. John just puts it here because it connects us to the purpose of his book. Regardless, Jesus goes in with the same purpose one time or two times, and it's to make sure that God's house, his Father's house, is a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. In fact, it was to clear so that foreigners, Gentiles, other people could come in and worship. In fact, in Mark 11, the other episode, uh, when the cleansing of the temple takes place, it says this, as he taught them, he said, is it not written, why don't you read with me now, my house will be called a house of prayer for the Jews. Is that what it says? What's it say? For all nations. For all nations. There's a church in London, John Stott, pastor for a number of years, All Nations Church. I mean, the, the gospel came forth for all nations. They were supposed to be open to all nations. The, the Great Commission, the Old Testament was, uh, everyone is welcome here, but the problem is that was not the case. The door and the courts had been closed to the Gentiles. To, to those on the outside. So the temple was a place of worship for all nations, but it became exclusive to these den of thieves, to the Jews themselves. And it became a problem. The passion of Jesus, the passion of Christ. In fact, uh, archaeologists found this sign, uh, the, this, uh, uh, this piece of stone carved on it, or these words, no stranger is to enter within the balustrade around the temple and the enclosure. Whoever is caught will be responsible for him to himself for his death, which will ensue. That's really a seeker-friendly church, isn't it? You show up, you walk across, let's cross this line, we're going to kill you. You wonder why the Jews felt like they were like a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah? I mean, the Gentiles rather. I mean, the Gentiles felt like they were the most unwelcome people there. And so Jesus comes on the scene. He says, we got to change this stuff. This stuff has got to change. And, and I'm going to turn things over and start things new and fresh. I'm going to fulfill some of this stuff. Let me stop there for a minute. There are a lot of lessons. We're going to go on and look at more, but let me give you three quick lessons just from the cleansing of the temple so far. Lesson number one, just as the temple became an exclusive place of worship for the Jews, the church can become an exclusive place of worship as well. And that's not what we're called to be. We're not called to be that. I mean, the church can become quite exclusive. We look around and we say, huh, how can they come dressed like that? They're dressed kind of weird. By the way, dressing weird at TBC is wearing a suit on a Sunday. <laughs> I mean, we're saying, how can they dress like that? Or they're all tatted up. What are they doing here? They're Democrats. What are they doing here? They're Republicans. What are they doing here? They're black. What are they doing here? They're white. What are they doing here? They're Hispanic. What are they doing here? They're poor. What are they doing here? They're rich. What are they doing here? They're longhorns, longhorns, Aggies. What are they doing here? I've asked myself that question for 36 years. Actually. He's a one-eyed, bald, deaf, overweight, cancer-ridden, Cajun Italian. Who let him in here? I've got my own key. That's how I got in here. But no, my friends, here's a reality. We laugh about that. I'm as guilty as anybody. 
How we love to judge, don't we? See, we're real happy associated with people just like us. We gather with those who are like us, and we judge those who are not. They're not the right party affiliation. They, from the wrong side of the tracks, they present themselves a certain way. They watch, hey, they watch CNN. They watch Fox. They watch MSNBC. How we love to divide. And we become as exclusive as the Jews did in the first century. And we're not called to be that way. We are called to go into all the nations and welcome all. So that when they walk through these doors, they hear the gospel. And then a revolutionary, they are rescued. I love that song we sang. We're rescued. And things change. Transformation happens. But we love to judge. We love to exclude. One lady in Leadership Journal recently wrote these words. She said, I often take my critical judgmental spirit to church with me on Sundays. Last Sunday before the church began, I got there early. I watched people coming in. I watched this lovely young couple down the aisle. My first thought was, how did she get him? That was my first thought. A teenager passed by. I whispered to my husband, can you believe her parents let her come to church wearing that? And then after church ended, I'm walking behind a lady and I think to myself, I haven't seen a healthier set of hips on a woman in a long time. And she said, on my way to the car, I saw a guy so tatted up, he looked like a walking billboard, and I wonder, why would he do that? I was having fun being critical. Then I began to criticize the pastor's sermon and hairstyle. You can criticize my hairstyle all you want. (laughs) It can't change. There's nothing going to happen, okay? And she said, then the Holy Spirit tugged on my heart and said, why? Why do I look at people that way? They became exclusive, so can we. One of the things I hate is folks that visit TBC and say, gosh, it's a big church, it's unfriendly, nobody talked to me. Um, Don't be exclusive, reach out. Love on somebody, find a group, be somewhere. If I could, I'd have us all give a big group hug right now so we could know everybody's welcome and loved, but here's the reality. Who are you excluding? from your life. The the second thing I I learned from this is I had to ask myself this question this week. Gary, is there some yeast in your heart? So they went Passover after Passover and they cleaned the yeast out. They got the sin out and what the the yeast stood for that and they cleaned it up. And so I've got to ask myself, Gary, is there yeast in your heart you need to clean up? In Psalm Psalm 139, David concludes that psalm this way, search me, O God, know my heart, test me, and know my anxious thoughts, see if there be any offensive way in me, and lead me in, uh, lead me in the way everlasting. So, so is there a little yeast in your heart, just a small little seed, a small little thing that, that, that's growing to something bigger? When's the last time you paused and said, Lord, search my heart, know me, God, see if there's something there. The third thing I get from this, first of all, we can't be exclusive. Secondly, we have to search our hearts just as they search their houses, as they search their temple. We need to search our temple. And the third thing I get from this, this is messianic. This is messianic. You see the conclusion of the disciples? They are quoting from Psalm 69. Psalm 69, verse 9. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. 
So why would the disciples all of a sudden remember that? Thy house, the temples he's referring to. And so what the disciples remembered, they saw uh, just as David had a passion and a longing for the temple, so the Messiah, the greater David, would have a passion and longing for the temple to be pure. And so what they're saying is this is messianic. They're going back to the purpose of John's gospel, which says Jesus performed many other signs in the present disciples that are not recorded in this book. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, believing you may have life in his name. And so what we see there, John is weaving this tapestry through his book to prove to us that Jesus is the Christos, the Messiah. If you were with us last week at the men's conference, Matt Hurd did a marvelous job teaching from this passage. And he said, part A is the fact that we know that he's Messiah. Part B is living life in his name. And sometimes we focus on part A, which is the doctrine, but we forget about the vibrancy of living our lives in Jesus. And so we need to be living this abundant life. And when they quote Psalm 69, 9 in John chapter 2, I think what they're saying is the zeal that he has for this house should be an indication that he is the Messiah. He is cleaning the father's house. He's getting the yeast out. He's, he, he's getting the drug out. He's he dredged out. He's getting everything out that needs to be out because he is following as the, he is the greater David. He is the one who, who is the fulfillment of all of these things. So we move from the passion of Jesus to the proof of Jesus. So they look at him and it's quite interesting to me what takes place next. What takes place next is they blow their whistles. They call for the temple cops, right? There's a temple guard. They call for the temple guard. Come and arrest this guy. Is that what happens in your Bible? I mean, look at the next verse. They call for the people to come to earth. That's not what they do. What they do is they turn to Jesus and they look at him and said, uh, what sign do you show to us seeing that you do these things? It's interesting to me, they don't arrest Jesus. They don't argue about his accusations. They don't argue about his actions. All they do is question his authority. See, I I think what happened is when he went there and did this stuff and he said, you've turned my father's house into a house of merchandise, I think they were pierced. I think there was a piercing there. It certainly impacted their pocketbook, but the realization was, hey, who are you to come in here and do that? Who are you? You're the intruder. This is our party. What gives you the right to do that? That's what they're asking. Show us a sign so we can know you have the right to do that. They're not questioning the action. They're not questioning the accusation. They're just saying, hey, who are you to have the right to come in here and do that right now? Show us a sign. So signs are a big deal in John's gospel. We've talked about that. We saw at the end of uh, Chase taught last week in verse 11, it talks about this being the first sign. Here they say, show us signs. Verse 23, he performed signs. And one of the realities of it is even though he did all these signs, they still didn't believe in him. I mean, in John chapter 12, verse 37, look up here, it says, even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still wouldn't believe in him. So later on in the gospel, we're we're now 10 more chapters ahead. He's performed all these miracles, but they're still not believing. And so what's taking place here, uh, John's editorial comment is, hey, uh, they they, they asked for a sign. And uh, the Jews, therefore, said it took 36 years. Well, look look at his sign, verse 19. I'm sorry, I skipped that verse. Destroy the temple. In three days, I'll raise it up. I'm going to tell you, if we'd have been that audience, everybody starts laughing right there. Really? Who do you think you are? It took, look at the next verse. They looked at him and said, it took 46 years to build a temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? I mean, they, they were incredulous. They couldn't believe that. They're thinking, now think about that, my friends. They're, where are they standing right now when they're talking to Jesus? Where are they standing? Not a trick question. Where are they standing? In the temple. 
And, and he looks around and he says, hey, you destroy the temple three days, I'm going to raise it up. Well, if you were one of those folks, you would think the same thing. He's talking about the bricks and mortar here. You can think he's talking about tearing this thing down and he's going to rebuild in three days. And you're thinking, man, every construction crew in the whole world could show up and this thing isn't going to be rebuilt in three days. It took 46 years to get here. I mean, it's kind of like TBC, right? If I told you, hey, let's all go out there and finish this project, I mean, it ain't going to happen. And Jesus says, hey, you destroyed three days, I'm going to raise it up. And they just have to click the, cluck their tongues and laugh at him and say, you have no idea what you're talking about. And so John, he explains it. He makes this little editorial insertion in verse 21. But he was speaking of the temple, it was his body. When therefore Christ was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he said these things. And they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. You see, here's, here's a reminder. The temple, the temple was a place where God met man. The Shekinah glory, God dwelt there. God met man. It was also the place of sacrifice. The ultimate display of God meeting man is Jesus. John 1.14. The word became what? Flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is saying, I am greater than this temple. I'm greater than these stones. You think it's the great place to worship. I'm telling you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the fulfillment of everything that takes place here. And ultimately, talking about sacrifices, the author of Hebrews would say, he came as a once and for all sacrifice. The reason we don't drag bulls and goats and oxen and sheep and dove in here is because the sacrifice, the price has been paid by our Savior. Amen? And Jesus looks at them and says, hey, destroy this place three days, I'm going to raise it up. And he's talking about the resurrection. The sign he gave to them was the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. When he came out of that grave, he came as a fulfillment of all these things. I mean, he looks at them and he says, hey, uh, destroy this thing three days and come and three days I'll rebuild it. That, that, he might as well have spoken in Russian to them. They had no idea what he was saying. It's like somebody talking to me about mechanics. You start talking to me about mechanics, my eyes glaze over, my forehead starts sweating, my feet get itchy, and I want to. I could care less about mechanics. I just want my car to work. Dudes are certain. It's like it's like men whose wives start talking about understanding women. Okay. How does that go for you, ladies? Hey, honey, let me tell you what we're really like. By the way, uh, here, here's a little langyap for you. Langyap means a little extra in New Orleans talk. Uh, Valentine's Day is week after next, guys. Remember that. Put it on your calendars. Wives, hit your husbands and wake them up right now. Uh, don't miss that. That's one way to understand your wife. Okay. They don't understand what he's talking about. They don't understand it. John would later write, now we get it. He was talking about the resurrection. You see, in a few years, they would be dead bolted in an upper room, quivering in fear. And Jesus would come walking through a wall. And when the resurrected lion of Judah stands in your presence, you're different. So he says, here's the proof. I'll give it to you. Proof is a resurrection. 
And then finally, we see the perception of Jesus in verses 23 through 25. And what Jesus realizes is that they're following him because he's a miracle worker, because he does signs, because he does these things, but they're going to become fickle instead of faithful and they're going to fall away. So Jesus has not entrusted himself to these folks. So what's happening here? I want to wrap this up. In writing this gospel, John is showing Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He's a fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament points to. So in John chapter 1, verse 1, we read he's eternal word. In John chapter 1, verse 4, he is light and he is life. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he is the word become flesh. In John chapter 1, verse 17, he's the revealer of grace and the revealer of truth. In John 1, 29, he is a lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In John 1, 31, he is the ladder who is the connection between heaven and earth. He is the way for angels to ascend and descend. In John 2, 1 through 11, the wedding feast of Cana, he is the creator and he is the purifier. And in uh, the passage we're looking at today, he is the zealous cleanser. And then the passage we're looking at right now, these verses, he is the resurrected Messiah. What John is doing, he's weaving this tapestry saying, I want you to know he's the Christos. If you believe in him, you not only have eternal life, but you have abundant life in his name. When I look at this passage, yeah, they turned this place into a flea market. What it was, it was a flea market. And Jesus didn't come into our world to overturn tables. He became an intruder in our world, in the temple, in our lives. To overturn the traditions of man with the truth of who he was. And so when we think of our Savior, he's the one who came to overturn these earthly traditions with the truth of who he was. And he goes in to cleanse the temple of this yeast to show that the Father's house needed to be cleansed as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul picks up on this analogy. We'll conclude with this. Paul says, Whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against the body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? You are a temple of the Holy Spirit and uh, who's in you, whom you've received from God. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And so what he's saying is, hey, you've got to get the yeast out. Specifically here, it's in the context of sexual morality. You've got to get the yeast out because you've been bought by Christ. You've got to flee this stuff because you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. How can you do these things? You're not your own. You're his. He paid the price for you. And so I ask you this morning, is there a little yeast you need to get out of your life? You need a little cleansing this morning. Is there a little desecration and defilement that needs to be replaced by purity and purification through purification? Henry Nouwen is a renowned scholar and as uh, he spent several months in a Trappist monastery so he could live in quiet and get to know the Lord at a deeper level. And he writes in his diary from his time there, he said, there was a day when I had the task to work with two men in the, in the monastery bakery. Our job on this day was to wash the raisins. The next day, another set of monks would bake, the ra- bake bread, raisin bread. And so here's what he writes. For four and a half hours, <clears throat> I worked with Brother Theodore and Brother Benedict at the raisin washer. Theodore washed, Benedict collected the raisins, I folded boxes when they were filled with raisins. Suddenly, Theodore stopped the machine. A stone went through, he said. 
<clears throat> I looked at him. I mean, there's all kind of noise in here. He said, how do you know? I heard it, he said. How could you possibly hear it? Theodore, the noise of the machines and the raisins cascading through the washer. How could you hear a single stone? I tell you, I heard it, Henry. We have to find that stone. If it goes into the bread and someone buys the bread, they could bite on the stone and break a tooth and that would not be right. He pointed to the tub that I was standing over filled with thousands of washed raisins. He said, we have to push them all through the washer again until we find the stone. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Benedict hadn't been able to hear it, but Theodore said he had, and so we did what they said we had to do. It seemed to me there were not thousands of raisins, but millions of raisins that had to go through the washer. To me, it seemed like finding a needle in a haystack. I doubt if we could do it. And we began to cap, put the, water, the raisins through the water and they cascaded through. And then all of a sudden he hit the button and stopped the washer. I heard it. To me, it would be like finding a needle in a haystack. But he said, I heard it bounce against the metal wall. Then he reached down and he moved the raisins around. And, and there it was, a small purple blue stone about the size of a raisin. Theodore took it in his hand. He gave it to me with a big smile and said, Henry, this is for you. And now in writing the diary, I was so impressed, not just with Theodore's alertness, but even more with his determination to find that which should not have been there and to take it out. So I ask you this morning, got a little raisin, a little yeast? Needs to come out. Something that you need to be rid of this morning. So we're going to conclude in a little different way this morning. Pam's going to play. And she's playing. I'm going to pray. And I'd like us to leave this way. I want us to leave in silence. So as she's praying, I'm going to pray. She's going to play. You let the Holy Spirit work in your life. Is there a little yeast there? Something that needs to come out? You might want to come get on your knees. I'll be down here. You might want to just get on your knees right in the chair in front of you. But after you're done, you just stand and we'll quietly leave the auditorium this morning along the Spirit of God to search our hearts. Let's pray. Father, would you shine the light of your Spirit in every corner of our hearts? Search every cupboard. Open every door. Bring whatever evil thing is hidden there out. Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any impure way in me. If there's any trace of hypocrisy, impurity, greed, materialism, racism, hatred, unforgiveness, bitterness. Father, would you bring that to light? Would you get rid of the yeast so it doesn't turn into a rising dough in our lives? Father, take from a small talk that can grow into gossip or a slight stretching of truth that grows into a lie or insecurities that grow into jealousies. Forgive us for tolerating these things in the courtyard of our life. Come to the temple of our hearts and overturn the tables, drive out the money changers and make our hearts a heart, a temple of worship and praise. So right where you are, sitting, kneeling, standing, coming to the front, you do business with the living God. 
And when you're done, just stand and exit quietly.